Lady Britain, your late husband, Lord Britain, Leon Britain, had a distinguished public life, great public servant, distinguished ex-home secretary, then trade and industry secretary before becoming an EU commissioner. But his last few years were overshadowed by false sex abuse allegations. It was a witch hunt, wasn't it? The presumption of innocence had gone. That was awful for him, but I imagine awful for you as well. I think it was awful for him uh, that last year that he was alive, which was in 2014, because there was an, a false allegation and he was not well. He'd had three weeks in intensive care and he came out of hospital after a major operation, really very weakened. And it all happened, that particular allegation happened that summer. And there were other allegations that came forward from a couple of members of the House of Commons. And I think for him, he was determined to get better. He was determined to battle on. And he never really talked about how he felt about this uh, particular allegation, which he said was pure and utter fabrication. And I think by the end of the year, he just somehow other had had enough. He felt very not exactly let down by the system because he was too ill then. And so it was I who had to take over, dealing with the lawyers, dealing with the police and dealing generally with all the subsequent events that followed. And you are, of course, referring to an allegation made by a woman who was known publicly as mm -hmm. Jane. Yes. That was a rape allegation going back to 1967. We'll go into detail about that later. But there's also a subsequent allegations very near the end of your husband's life well, uh, by the man known as uh, as Nick, the VIP child abuse inquiry. Again, we'll come on to that, but there are basically parallel investigations at Scotland Yard into alleged events decades ago. I don't know whether he really knew the details of the Nick allegation. He was by that time more or less hospitalised in University College Hospital. Because it was, you know, in particular the Nick allegation, that was headline news for the BBC and other newspapers, to be fair. But it was there, and I guess, you know, even though he was very gravely ill, he may not have been able to switch himself off from that coverage. Well, I don't think, you know, when you're gravely ill in hospital, you're not listening to the radio, you might or might not look at the newspapers. He was certainly finding it very difficult to read by that time, because he was extraordinarily ill. He did, in the end, come out of hospital for a few days before he died. But I think, in perhaps in a way, he'd, he must, in his heart of hearts, have known he was being accused, or indeed others were being accused. But at that time, if I remember rightly, there'd been no names named. And I suppose the only way he could deal with it was to sort of put it to the back of his mind. And time was running out for him, to clear his name while he was still alive. That really must have been very difficult. I think all through that year and through the end of that year, I don't think he had the strength to fight the allegations. Had he been completely fit, had he been maybe a bit younger, had he not had terminal cancer, had he not been in and out of hospital all the time, and with all this time in intensive care, I think he would have had the fighting spirit to fight, but he didn't. He didn't have any of that left. I'm just going to read an extract of your victim impact statement to Newcastle Crown Court in the summer of 2019 after the man known as previously as Nick, real name Carl Beach, was convicted of lying. 
perverted in the course of justice and other offences and jailed for a total of 18 years. You said that your husband, can I call him Leon? Is that all right? Yes. yes. Uh, that Leon always believed in and upheld the rule of law and was passionate about fairness in the criminal justice system. And he respected the role of the police in our society. I just wonder whether that was really tested, that respect for the police was really tested in those last few months of his life. I think it was. I think it was tested very severely. Although, of course, he upheld the rule of law, he was really too ill to deal with them or to even think about any coping strategies. And one of the key issues here, it would seem, and I know that one of your close friends, Mark Gallagher, has said this to me on a number of occasions, that Leon was treated differently because he was famous. I think probably the nearest thing to an admission was from the then commissioner, Lord Hogan Howe, at the meeting that I had with him in February 2016, when we raised the question that where people who are well-known worst treated in the criminal justice system with these sorts of allegations, and certainly I got the impression that the answer was yes. They were worst treated. That's really like an indictment of Scotland Yard themselves, really, isn't it? How they handled him and other VIPs. I just think that the damage that was inflicted on both Leon and indeed in particular on Lord Bramall and of course Harvey Proctor as well was incalculable and once all the information went public it was just very much more difficult for them to deal with it because they were well-known figures either in their profession or in their locality or nationwide or even worldwide. It's almost as if a sense of madness had descended not only on the Metropolitan Police, but the police nationwide. That reaction to the Jimmy Savile scandal, the allegation that they hadn't taken allegations seriously because of his fame. I think there was a lot of truth in that. I mean, I don't know how much, but I sort of feel that the witch hunt that followed after the failings, perhaps, of the Jimmy Savile case had a disproportionate impact on the people who are accused in the Operation Midland. And it's not just the impact it had on those who were accused, it's those around them as well. In your case, hmm. you and your daughters, his stepdaughters. Well, it, it has a far wider impact than people think. It's your family. It's your immediate family. It's your further family. It's your friends. And indeed, friends of friends. It's your godchildren. It's the parents of your godchildren. And it's the sort of thing that people have views on. And I think it's very difficult in the eye of the storm, or indeed being the partner of the eye of the storm, is to keep your common sense about you. You just have to live through every day and hold your head up high and cling to your friends, acknowledge the help that you get from the people who are around you. And you have to not worry what the wider world is saying, because if you read every inch of newspaper that was written on this sort of a case, I'm not sure that you could face yourself day by day. It was vicious, utterly vicious. You know, I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm a battle-hardened, thick-skinned journalist, or I try to be anyway. But, I mean, I was abused on Twitter, accused of being a paedophile protector because of the campaign that I launched, the Daily Mail, to expose Nick and clear people who were 
wrongly accused by him. It was like the Wild West, and still is to a certain extent. There are people who won't believe that there was nothing in Carl Beecher's allegations, even though he's 18 months into an 18-year sentence. So much negative stuff written about Leon over the last few years, people may not realise much about his life. So I wanted to talk you through that and give you an opportunity to say a bit more about his upbringing and what he achieved in life, because he was born in London, wasn't he, during the war? Born in London, yes. Always used to say he was a true Londoner. His father was a GP, and I read that his paternal grandparents were Lithuanian Jews, and um, I imagine grew up North London, didn't he? Uh, yes, Leon grew up in, in Cricklewood. His mother and father had come to England from Lithuania in the late 20s. His other uncles from on his mother's side all emigrated to the United States. So as far as he was concerned, his relatives, apart from his mother and father, were not in Britain. They were mainly in the United States and elsewhere. He did very well at, at school. Well, he did quite well at school, but what really made the difference to Leon was going to Cambridge. And he left his school in London and, to some extent, his life in London with his parents, which was had its restrictions, I suspect, and went to Trinity College, Cambridge, where he made some lifelong friends. He got an interest in politics. He studied English followed by law. But for him, I always thought it was a real transformation of his life, was those four years that he spent at Cambridge. His network of friends there became known as the Cambridge Mafia because they, they reached the heights in the Tory party. Can you name well, some of those, <laughs> those Mafia members? The Mafia uh, was not all political. So the Mafia really consisted of Ken Clark, John Gummer, now John Deben, Michael Howard, Norman Lamont, Christopher Tugendhat, and then there were others. He had a great friend who became Professor of Archaeology at Cambridge, Colin Renfrew. There were one or two others who didn't become politicians, didn't become academics, and they all kept in touch with each other, and they became lifelong friends, and they're still friends. You know, that's been a great comfort to me. So all these years later, they've reached out the hand of friendship to me and still do. In those turbulent last few years of Leon's life, mm -hmm. they were there. They were. They've been very, very supportive and still are. You know, it's great comfort to me in a way that so many of Leon's friends, and indeed actually as life went on, and so many of the people who worked for him, both in the Treasury and the Home Office and in the European Commission, have kept in touch with me, and we're on very good terms together. After leaving university, he was called to the bar and specialised in libel. Correct. Quite an irony there, because of the attacks his own reputation came under. Uh, he decided that he had to go and make a living, because he wasn't sure how easy it would be to get into politics. And, and he decided he'd go to the bar, and perhaps, I think his pupil master was a libel lawyer, and then he practised law, but really his heart was in politics. And it was. He became an MP in 1974. Yeah. Is that right? For Cleveland and Whitby. Correct. And that was around the time that you, you met him. I was living in the northern part of North Yorkshire, and Leon was the 
prospective Conservative parliamentary candidate for Cleveland and Whitby. And we met in one of the towns that was Woodby in his uh, new constituency if he were to win it. And we were at a party together and one of my friends, one of his friends, introduced us. And I suppose it's a long time ago, but I think for Leon, I'm told, and he told me subsequently, it was love at first sight. For me, there were complications, of course, because um, I was married to someone else and I had two relatively young children. But I'd never really met anyone quite like him and he reminded me enormously at that particular time in my life of my late father, who had had many of the same characteristics as Leon in terms of warmth, affection, love and all of that. And I suppose it's really what I was looking for. You're smiling as you say that, bringing yeah. back happy memories. Of course it brings back happy memories. Well, it brings back complicated memories of that particular time. He had a political career that he was trying to pursue and the election came a year or two afterwards and he won that particular election. There were two in that particular year. It was 1974. And it was difficult, I think, for him because he was trying to forge himself a new political career. And on the other hand, his heart, much to his friend's astonishment, was elsewhere. How long were you sort of formally together well, before you married? I left home, my previous home, in 1977. And then I lived on my own with my two girls until really the very end of 1980. And then we got married and then we moved house, so to speak, into the house that he had rented close to the Tate Gallery. And he, in the sort of mid to late 70s, he was a rising star in the Tory party, wasn't he? Indeed. And therefore, the affairs of his heart, I think, were, were ones that were preoccupying him up to a point. But of course, he was trying to make his way. You got married some years later, didn't you? Mm, we did. Um, just before he joined the cabinet. Yes. We got married at the end of 1980. And we had a honeymoon in Rome. And then when he came back, Geoffrey Howe, who was then the Chancellor of the Exchequer, gave us a party at number 11 Downing Street. And at that party, Geoffrey Howe announced to the assembled company that Leon had just been elevated to the Cabinet as Chief Secretary to the Treasury. So he was in what I would consider, without getting too political, but a real heavyweight Cabinet. Well, I think it was. I think he was very pleased to join. It was an interesting job. It was a tough job at the time because the Chancellor had all sorts of very difficult financial decisions to make, including inflation. I think at that time they had to raise VAT. But it was a happy time, I think. So clearly Margaret Thatcher rated him. Well, I think so, and I hope so. Not that I really ever had the opportunity to discuss that sort of thing with her. Maybe with him, but I mean, he, he, he clearly, he wouldn't be promoted, would he, if he didn't? Um... I think he was thought to do the Home Office job well. He was then promoted into this financial job, the Treasury job, which was a tough one at the time because of public expenditure is always tough, but it was particularly tough then. And he became the Home Secretary, the youngest at the time since Winston Churchill. I think that is correct. Not an easy job. Anyway, he became Home Secretary in June... 1983. He had two years as Home Secretary and mm. two major events stand out for me from his tenure. The murder of the policewoman, Metropolitan Police Officer Yvonne Fletcher during the Libyan embassy siege. And then the Brighton bombing of 1984, wasn't it? Tory party uh, conference. Yes. I remember both of those quite well. The tragic murder of WPC Fletcher. I have a very vivid memory of that particular day 
because for one thing, we were due for a once and only time in my life to go to what was called a dine and sleep at Windsor Castle. And before we were able to go, or Leon was able to go to Windsor, I remember him saying to me, I'm not going to let the diplomats in London leave from Heathrow Airport until the diplomats in Libya have taken off. I just want to make absolutely certain that our diplomats are safe and sound out of Libyan airspace before I let the diplomats leave from London. And that's something I remember very clearly on that particular day, in fact. And then we put on our glad rags and our evening dresses and went off to Windsor. I mean, that was just enormous news. It was an enormous event, and it was a tragic one, too. And these are the sort of things that Home Secretaries have to deal with, but you never know what's going to come round onto your in-tray on a daily basis. Did that affect him personally, or was not that type of person? I think it's difficult to say. Of course you're affected by it, and you're wanting to do the right thing, because, of course, you know, when it's the first time that it happens... It's very difficult to know whether you've got it right. Of course you have advice, and you know, a, a minister is very much dependent on their civil servants and their private office. But I think, I mean, Leon didn't come home and give me a blow-by-blow blow what happened, who was involved, and all of that. But you hope by the, the end of the day that what you have done is, is, is right as much as possible, but you know that life has been lost. There was also... As we just discussed briefly, the Brighton bombing. That's a Tory party conference mm. in Brighton, uh, the, the uh, hotel there, blown up. And if we, if you wish, you can listen to some audio of Leon talking after that. The Prime Minister's bathroom was completely destroyed and the Foreign Secretary's uh, sitting room and mine was the next one along. None of us were hurt. So that's a very brief extract of what he said. I didn't realise until listening to that research of his podcast that he was so close to been blown up himself. What's your recollection of that night? Firstly, I wasn't there. I was back in the flat we were living in at that time in, in London. And because I was rung up very early in the morning, I hadn't listened to the radio. And I don't know whether it was his protection officer or whether it was his private secretary. I think it's probably his private secretary. All they did was ring me up and say, don't worry, Leon's okay. He's not been hurt. And I'm not sure that I took in at the time, because it was very early in the morning, what it was all about. And then, of course, as the story unfolded, you realised the enormity of what had happened on that day and how Margaret Thatcher was determined to go on with the conference and therefore Leon had all the responsibilities of doing whatever a Home Secretary did at that particular time. I'm not absolutely certain, because it wasn't really very something he really ever came back and talked about. He didn't talk about his feelings about what it felt like. And it, it wasn't something that he very often confided in me about. I mean, he did what he hoped was right and best, and as they all did. They carried on with the conference. And I think the feeling was that we don't want to give in to terrorism. Today, yeah. possibly, you'd be offered counselling, wouldn't you, if something <laughs> like this happened? <laughs> Certainly offered no counselling. He wasn't, on the outside at least, he didn't seem to be affected by it. You can't be affected... You can be profoundly internally affected in a funny way, but when you have to do a job of that nature, you can't every day feel, this is terrible, or I'm gutted, and 
whatever it is you would want to say. It's, I don't think it's the way that those senior jobs work. You have to deal with things as they come along. Of course, you can have your private feelings about them. You can say that this is the most terrible thing to have happened. You can feel angry, but you have to do the job and you have to carry on on a daily basis. The issue of him having police protection at that time, we'll come back to it in more detail a bit later, is an important one, because he did have police protection, didn't he? Home sectors always do. Yeah, so mm. both in London and at your North Yorkshire constituency home, yeah. there was a police officer with him virtually all the time. He couldn't escape it. And that's important when you consider the allegations made by Carl Beach, that well, he was supposedly leading this double life, exactly. which the police yeah. and the security services, imagine Leon was vetted, mm continually that somehow he had this double life and he was part of a murderous paedophile gang. Well, you were never away from a protection officer. During the day, there was one protection officer and one driver. They were both members of the protection team and the car. And then at night in London, we had a flat at uh, Admiralty House. And there was, of course, protection on the gateway. I mean, it's now more protected than it was then. And if you went to a restaurant, a police officer came with you. If you went to, I don't know, if you went out to dinner, the protection officer would sit in the kitchen. If we went out walking, the police protection officer would accompany us on walks. And then at night in Yorkshire, the local special branch would take up residence sort of behind the garage. So, in fact, you weren't ever on your own. I mean, if I was the senior officer leading Operation Midland and Operation Bintenti, you know, two investigations were considered later in this interview. One of the first people I want to talk to was the protection officers from that period because he was supposedly a Home Secretary mm. carrying out murders. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know whether they ever were spoken to, but they should have been. And certainly it was extraordinarily difficult for a minister who has protection. He didn't just slip away. You couldn't do that. In advance of this podcast, I listened to a recording of Leon on Desert Island Discs in, in 1993, and it came across very clearly to me that you had, a, you had a very strong marriage. And he spoke about the importance of having a hinterland yeah. as a politician. You know, so much has been written about Leon over the last few years. You know, people of my age will probably just remember being a politician in a suit. So behind the scenes, what was he like? What was he like? Well... Leon was an extraordinarily romantic man, very affectionate, hopeless with his hands, couldn't really change a fuse in a plug, didn't do any of those things, but was very interesting. He was very interested in people. He had a wicked sense of humour. He was a brilliant mimic, and he would hold us all in complete stitches. And when my daughters were very young, he was the most brilliant storyteller. They would give him subjects to talk about. I mean, completely outlandish things. And he would weave a story round it. You've shown me some pictures, kindly, of Leon with your daughters. And it seems to me that the real warmth there, going back to, it seemed like they were perhaps in their late teens or, or, or 20s, a real warmth. I think there was a real warmth. I think it was not easy to take on a couple of stepchildren. I had one very... Perhaps you might say rather conformist daughter and one rather rebellious daughter. And the rebellious one was quite rebellious through that early period, probably quite naturally, of Leon and my living together. This was post-1980. And she would occasionally go out for the night and not come back. 
and that would cause cause a lot of distress all round because at that time I think he was Home Secretary. But all their lives, I think they were very fond of him, and he was a, he was a very good stepfather. And so all those things, perhaps nobody knows about Leon, is he showed towards me and towards Catherine of Victoria. Just wondered how did they address him? Well, he had many nicknames. And one of the speeches that were give, was given at his memorial service by my elder daughter referred to these variety of, of nicknames they gave him over the years. But the last one, really, because he was so much like the character in A.A. A. Milne, is he was known as Tigger. And so they, they would call him Mr. Tiggs. You showed me some cards, very romantic cards from him, where he signed it, Tiggs. <laughs> Unbelievably romantic. I mean, nothing more romantic ever I ever had in my entire life was from the cards for various anniversaries, Valentine's Day, wedding anniversary, birthday from Leon. You showed me a card which he wrote from hospital mm. just before Christmas in 2014. Yeah. He wouldn't have known it then, obviously, nor you, that he had less than a month to live yeah. then. But he, he signed that, Tiggs, as well. And he did. He, he made it very clear, his, his love for you. He did. Yes, it was, it was the last thing he ever wrote, actually. I think he was unable, really, to write anything from then onwards. Although, of course, he came home. But we weren't writing, we were merely talking. Before going to the Commission, he served very briefly as Trade and Industry Secretary, didn't he? Very briefly, very briefly indeed. Until the helicopter fiasco West, felled him, yes. Yeah, I mean, that was a very difficult time for him and for you. And I, I'm, I was reading here uh, an interview you gave to the late, great Linda Lee Potter in the Daily Mail in January 86, just after he had uh, quit the Cabinet. And Linda said of you, when she talks about him, it's with passionate love, with occasional laughter and with anger about what she feels has been a bitterly unjust attack on his integrity. Mm. I did feel that. I suppose it was the first time that I'd ever had to face something of that nature. I was utterly devastated at the time, and I said so in the article. I'd never been quite so upset, I think, probably since, as I said in the article, my father had died 24 years ago, but before that. And I just felt that, that I didn't feel that it was unfair, and he took the fact that he had to resign very well. He was upset, of course, I was upset. And I suppose we just had to move forward as best we can because when this sort of thing happens in the political world, and it perhaps rather happens rather less now than it used to, I mean, it is a big event for the person concerned, but it's also quite a big event anyway. And I remember going back to his constituency, Richmond, who were unbelievably supportive at that particular time, and they really were. And nobody confronted him. Everyone was extremely sympathetic and felt that he'd probably done something that was quite honourable. I don't think anyone would have resigned for those reasons these days. I don't know. It was said at the time that the, the anti-Semitism might have played a part in that perceived witch hunt. What, looking back on it now... Well, I do remember that something that I felt quite offended by was that there was a very anti-Semitic cartoon. I, as a non-Jew, found that quite offensive, and I think there was a little bit of anti-Semitism on the floor of the House of Commons too. But, you know, that's something that you know, when you're married to somebody, it's something that you have to learn to deal with. And I could be much more vocal about it, because I wasn't Jewish, than he could. The anti-Semitism. Well, again, as I've always said, Leon was an eternal optimist. And if it did affect him, he didn't go around saying, poor little me. I mean, I'm 
discriminated against. You just have to move on in life and hold your head up high, even if you are the occasional target of racism or anti-Semitism. You have no choice but to quit Cabinet, looking back now. Well, I'm not sure that I ever quite knew the full facts of, of the day. I think he felt that his position was untenable. And when your position is untenable, the simplest thing to do is to resign and perhaps not to seek to hold on to power for the next three weeks. I should also mention here as well that during his time in government, he was falsely accused of child sex abuse. It was an interesting story, wasn't it? Because there was nothing in it. And it was later claimed by distinguished journalist at Private Eye, Paul Foote, that the security services might be involved in putting false allegations out because of issues involving Leon's views on them. I think that came out subsequently. I don't remember much at the time. Leon at the time said, there is nothing in this, entirely false. And I think at the very time he actually said, if I'm named, I will sue that newspaper or magazine. I mean, he was named in private eye, but somehow or other, that just went away. Subsequently, I've heard the story about the security services. At the time, I think nobody really knew, and it was thought it might have been a disaffected prisoner. Nobody knew. Two sort of veteran crime correspondents, mm. who I know pretty well, spent two or three months working mm. on that story mm. and came to the conclusion there was nothing in it. Mm. Uh, th- there that, was nothing in it. And that was, that was then. But it was just there. It was there. It suddenly appeared in about 1984, 85, I suppose. I think as far as he was concerned, it got put to bed by the actions of Private Eye at the time. You know, life moves on. You just have to not spend your time looking over your shoulder. After leaving government, he was a backbench MP and then yeah. eventually ended up in, in Brussels, didn't he, with you? He did. I've always said that that was the most wonderful job for him. It was perhaps the job to which he was very best fitted, was to to become the European Commissioner and the Vice President of the European Commission. And I think it was just just a job that suited him. He was a good linguist. He was relatively collegiate, because because the European Commission is not collegiate the way that a cabinet is. And he would fight his battles. He had a very good team. He had an excellent team of, they were called the cabinet, around him. who were mainly British civil servants, but they were extraordinarily good. You know, his cabinet enjoyed working for him, and he enjoyed working with them. And between them, they achieved a lot. So you say 11 years in Brussels? Nearly 11, just under 11. when did you get back to London? 2000, just before the end of 99. Then he joined a Swiss bank, and then retired from that, and then... They died shortly afterwards. So during that period, the issues from or the false allegation in the early 80s during his time as Home Secretary, there's no, you didn't get any, any letters or... Not that I can remember, not that I ever saw. Nothing was sent to him so. or her, nothing, uh, that had gone away. Well, it went away, but then it came, came back a bit, I mean, much later in sort of 2012, 13, and all of that stuff. But certainly during those first 10 years, I don't remember anything. And then... In 2012, Tom Watson, then a Labour backbench MP, made a dramatic statement during Prime Minister's questions in the Commons. The evidence file used to convict paedophile Peter Wrighton, if it still exists, contains clear intelligence of a widespread paedophile ring. One of its members boasts of his links to a senior aide of a former Prime Minister, 
who says he could smuggle indecent images of children from abroad. The leads were not followed up, but if the files still exist, I want to ensure that the Metropolitan Police secure the evidence, re-examine it and investigate clear intelligence suggesting a powerful paedophile network linked to Parliament and Number 10. I'm Stephen Wright, and you've been listening to a Mail Plus True Crime Special, a series of interviews with Lady Britain, widow of the former Home Secretary, Leon Britton.